Welcome back to another episode of the Just Checking In podcast. I'm your host, Freddie Cocker, and this podcast is brought to you by Vent, a place where everyone, but especially men and boys, can open up about their mental health issues, break down stigmas, and start conversations. Each pod, I check in with a special guest. We have a natter and a chat about all things mental health, as well as anything and everything else they are passionate about. If it helps that person with their mental health, we discuss it. In this episode, I am checking in with conflict journalist Aram Shabanian. Aram currently works as the open source information gathering manager for the New Lines Institute for Strategy and Policy. Aram had a untraditional route into conflict journalism after he struggled during his early academic years and had to go to two different universities after dropping out from the first one after failing his exams in his second year. Thankfully, he persevered and graduated before starting a side project called Folder Gap, which he did in his spare time. He then got an opportunity to appear on great friend of the pod, Jake Hammerhand's Popular Front podcast in 2018, before appearing on Matthew Galt's podcast, War College, and used those opportunities to get into the Middlebury Institute of International Studies for his postgraduate degree. From there, he befriended a woman based in Iraq who brought him on board at the New Lines Institute where he got a foot in the door before becoming a permanent member of staff through hard work and successfully predicting the Russia-Ukraine war and becoming the OSIG manager he is today. In this episode, we chart that unconventional journey into conflict journalism, class and elitism in the field of conflict journalism, and the problematic industry belief that in order to cut your teeth as a researcher, you must view a lot of harrowing content which can traumatise early stage researchers. We also discuss the latest situation in the war in Ukraine, the mutiny by the Putin-backed Wagner Group, and the sexual abuse and war crimes being committed by Russian soldiers against Ukrainian POWs and the Ukrainian population, which has accelerated and driven the way Ukrainians don't just view Russia as an invading force, but the entire Russian population. For Aram's mental health, we discuss his experience of depression, his diagnosis of ADHD, how medication helped his mental health and the impact of the death of his mother, which took place during a difficult time for his mental health. We finish by discussing his experience at the Evergreen State College from 2014 to 2017, during the most tumultuous time in its history, as it was taken over by a group of hard-left activist students who did some pretty bonkers things, including trying to take Professor Brett Weinstein hostage in his classroom, patrolling campus with baseball bats, and barricading the university management in their own office, which culminated in the then-college Dean George Bridges asking to go to the toilet and being told to hold it, by the chief protester. So this is how my check-in with Aram Shabanian went. Aram, welcome to the Just Checking Pod. Thank you so much for letting me take the time to check in with you. You are another pod guest. I've nicked off my good friend Jake, which I'm making a habit of now. So sorry, Jake, if you're listening. How are you, mate? Oh, not too bad, man. How are you doing today? Yeah, I'm good. Thanks, mate. It is 3.56 here on a Sunday. I just recently watched the England women lose the World Cup final in the football. So uh, not, not a great start to my Sunday, but I'm chatting to you now. So hopefully you're not a much better end. We've got loads to talk about. I wanted to have you on, not just to give my listeners a bit of reality of what's happening in Ukraine, particularly in regards to the Wagner group, but that's not all we're going to talk about. We're going to talk about lots of other stuff. So without further delay, 
Are you ready to start the show? Absolutely. Let's begin your podcast by talking about this journalism journey you have been on, Aram, specifically conflict journalism. So tell me back to the beginning first. What inspired you to get into it? Where did your love for writing or reporting or the subject matter even come from? And the journey to where you are today? Yeah, I mean, I'll say that I started my journey, honestly, as far back as I can remember. One of the more formative events of my life was when I was 10 and I saw the attacks on 9-11 happen on live television. And so that led me to a career or a lifetime of being interested in studying the conflicts the U.S. was involved in at the time, namely the war in Iraq and the war in Afghanistan. Uh, and I told myself that if the U.S. was going to be involved in these wars and these countries, that I should probably do something to know a little bit about the countries and understand the wars themselves. And so I started following them from a pretty early age. I mean, the first report thing I did was in fifth grade. I did a book report on Saddam Hussein and I dressed up as him and came to class dressed as Saddam Hussein. And this was like, this was That's on PC. <laughs> no, this was not PC. This was 2003 too. And like a small rural a different American time. school. <laughs> yeah. Like, um, but anyway, so that continued on, you know, but it was, my father was born in Iran. He's an Armenian from Iran. And so after 9-11, my family got quite a bit of crap from people regarding mm. the attacks. We were, you know, seen as too close to being Middle Eastern for comfort for a lot of rural folks in America. And so even though we weren't Arabs ourselves, we were treated as Arabs and we, we got all the racism that was associated with that. Nobody should you were, you were adjacent enough, basically, for them. Yeah, The closest thing they'd ever seen to an Arab. And so they, they mm. took all their racist hatred out on us, which was great. And it meant that when I researched this stuff growing up, I had to hide it because if somebody saw me reading about terrorism, they would call me a terrorist or make a joke about me being a terrorist. And it was just like, I'm not, that's not what's happening, but okay. And so, yeah, basically I was a pretty abysmal student in high school. I barely graduated, went to a, my first undergrad instu institute and flunked out of it actually. And it was only at my second undergrad institute that I realized I had a real aptitude for following the wars, especially in the Middle East that I had been following for most of my life by that point that I thought everybody else had been doing, but they had not. Um, so when I took a class on the Middle East and then a class on Russia at my second undergrad institute, I really excelled in those classes. And I, I would teach the class on like a weekly basis about like what updates were happening in various regions of the world, both Eastern Europe and the Middle East. And so that led me eventually to meeting Jake uh, Hanrahan and then being on his podcast. And that kind of accelerated my uh, career and my focus down the conflict studies pathway. And so continued on through undergrad, ended up going to grad school at the Middlebury Institute in Monterey uh, for nonproliferation and terrorism studies. Mouthful. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's a lot. And then before I graduated, I got hired on at the New Lines Institute for Strategy and Policy. And uh, now I'm their open source research analyst guy, basically. So open source research manager is technically the title but we're a three-person department, so mm -hmm. more of a researcher than a manager. But um, sure. maybe someday it'll be more management, but for now... Let's hope so, mate. We're manifesting. We're manifesting, <laughs> we're manifesting it. Right, right. <laughs> Have a whole crew below me, right? But basically, yeah, I mean, that that's what kicked my journey off was realizing that these things have a, a very real impact on us as Americans as, as far away as they may seem at times. You know, the attacks on 9-11 drove it home to me. I mean, I was in Oregon, so across the country from New York. So... It wasn't a direct connection in that sense, but my dad worked in a big building in downtown Portland. And so for a 10-year-old, that was close enough for a connection for me to be like, oh, that could have happened to my dad. Maybe I should be paying attention to this stuff. And so that's been my interest, right? Is that like, if I have an interest in it 
and I think that it needs to be learned or talked about, then I'm not doing myself a duty or doing the topic a duty if I don't actually teach people about it. It's one thing to say people should be more aware of what's going on in Iraq and then to leave it at that. It's another thing to say people should be more aware of what's going on in Iraq and then be prepared to teach them what's going on in Iraq, right? And I think you have to have the latter to actually be effective in this field. Just going back to school, you said to me off air that the only teachers who really believed in your ability were in the history and international relations departments. So how did they give you the confidence you needed to A, get the grades and B, spark that interest in what you're doing now? Well, I mean, it was, it came down to, in high school, I was a sophomore and my GPA wasn't even like a 1.0, like it was below a one point. I was in the bad kid classes where like the classes you go to, like not just if you got knocked up in high school, but if you got knocked up in high school and then like tried to burn the school down and then so. tried to burn the school down. <laughs> right. Like that was the kind of class. I, so I was like, not in the good kid class, but I came to class one day in a United Nations t-shirt because I got it at the UN building in New York when I went with my family and the teacher watching the class goes, are you interested in the UN? And I go, yeah. And he goes, well, my wife is the model UN teacher here. Would you like me to introduce you to her? I go, that'd be cool. So he introduced me to this teacher who was like a history teacher. And she took me under her wing and put me in this class that she had. It was called Advanced International Government. So I never would have taken it because it seems too scary. I was trying to like not work in high school. Um, <laughs> like if there, I was good at history, but I didn't take AP history because I'm not trying to. No, man, I'm not trying to prove that to anybody. Like I don't need to. I was pretty lazy at the time. And so um, that is to say, though, that she demonstrated to me that like, I actually knew how to write pretty well. We had to write like these, you know, at the time, very intense papers at two to five pages, which was a big deal in high school. Right. And so we'd have to write a paper about pretend you're a French diplomat, write your stance on the Iraq war. And so you had to research what France's positions were on the Iraq war and, and take that position. You had to LARP a French politician, basically. Right. And so I realized that I was pretty good at the international relations stuff. And so it was between her and a couple other history teachers at the high school that really kept me going. And, and I mean, I would get, you know, a D plus in math and then like, a, you know, a, a D in science, uh, maybe a C in English and then an A plus in history. And it was just like, what the hell? Like, what's going on here? Like something, something doesn't add up here. And that something was definitely undiagnosed ADHD was part of it. I think we'll get to that later. Um, but um, yeah. And then in college, it was always just the history teachers that seemed to like me. I mean, the other teachers seemed to take my style of learning as like a threat to what they were doing. They didn't like when people asked questions, especially like questions that they couldn't answer. So I got a lot of crap from a lot of professors. And it happened with some history professors, too. There was one that I remember in grad school that fronted as like an African terrorism affairs expert. And so I asked her a question about an African terror group, and she got really mad at me uh, and was really, really shitty to me for like the rest of the term to the extent that like our class president was in the class and he would message me and be like, dude, do you guys have history or something? Like she really hates you. And it's like, oh, I just asked a question about the Polisario front. I'm sorry. Like, <laughs> so that was a bit of an, an issue, but for the most part, yeah, history teachers have always liked me. And I think that they've seen that my questioning is not a threat. It might seem that way to a teacher who doesn't understand where I'm coming from. But when you actually listen to what I'm saying, I'm not trying to disrupt the class or cause problems. I'm trying to ask, questions so I can understand the material better. And a lot of teachers didn't really like that. They say they want any questions, but they don't really want any questions. And that went away less as I got into higher education too. But you know, um... <laughs> Let's go forward now back to the Middlebury Institute, because it sounds a little bit like a 
fancy finishing school for CIA analysts and embassy staff. But it wasn't I mean, the yeah. path that you wanted to go down, was it? No, and that was the weird thing was that like a lot of the other students there either had like parents in the State Department or the CIA or something or like in government. And so like not trying to knock the school or the students there because there were a lot of really brilliant students and professors there. But I mean, there were also a lot of students there who were just kind of in it because it was a job. I mean, it was like a, a career mill to work in spooky government agencies. And that wasn't really ever my intent. I thought I was going to be a history teacher, actually, up until I got basically hired on a think tank. Um, and, and that's still my goal is to be a history teacher someday, you know, at like a community college level. I don't want to work for some big fancy university or anything that's like gated basically to the average person. I want to be able to, to teach the average person in the way that I was taught. I didn't go to a university out of high school. I went to a community college, you know, and so I want to offer that same thing to people. And so, yeah, off topic a little bit there. <laughs> it's all about being off topic on this podcast, mate. <laughs> Let's fast forward again to the New Lines Institute, because the way that you entered this place was in a, a sort of a strange twist of fate, wasn't it? Yeah. So I had become pretty good friends with an individual on Twitter whom I met through Jake Hanrahan, actually. And her and I talked for a number of years. She being from Iraq uh, and me being fascinated by Iraq, we kind of had a lot to talk about. Um, and so fast forward a couple of years, I'm, I'm wrapping up at Middlebury and she messaged me and asked me for my resume and says, you know, we've got an opening. We're studying the American radical right and we need a researcher. Uh, would you be interested? And I was like, yeah, I'd, I'd love to. Yeah, you know, I, New Lines was a company that I'd wanted to work for for a while because they're relatively impartial and they don't have like a long history in DC of like terrible things they've done and said. Not We're the film new... production company either. Right, exactly. Yeah, not, <laughs> not, not the ones that. who made Lord of the Rings, the listeners. <laughs> no, no, we're not. I mean, I can claim that if I want to, <laughs> but, you know, as somebody who never really saw the Lord of the Rings movies recently, I, I saw them like when they came out, so I haven't really seen them because I don't remember them. So I'd right. be kind of lying to your listeners if I tried to pretend I knew any of the character names <laughs> at this point. But um, anyway, um, so my journey to New Line started with focusing on the American radical right. And, uh, and then in December of 2021, when I was a brand new intern there, my boss asked me like what I thought might happen in Ukraine. And I said what I thought, which was that I thought the Russians would probably invade Ukraine sometime late winter, early spring. And I thought initially it would happen sometime in January because that's what it looked like was going to happen. But then world events dictated that it happened a little bit later, namely the protests in Kazakhstan and then the Chinese Olympics dictated that it would happen at least after February 20th. So I said early January, I was telling people, hey, look, 20 days into February, 20, 25 days into February, we're going to see a war break out. And then on 20, February 24th, the war broke out. Wow. Uh, and so That's pretty mystic Meg levels. Yeah, it was, it was nuts, man. It was like, I mean, toward the end, it, it felt so much like something that could be manifested if we just all realized it was happening. The analyst community, the OSINT community, the spy community, we were all saying like, there's this war that's going to happen. And it was like getting every, it was like the cartoon character running off the cliff and then looking down and seeing that there's no cliff underneath them. Right. It was like, One we needed to just look yeah, down. Yeah. 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 <laughs> we just need to like to look down and see that there was this war happening to be like, oh yeah, there's a war happening. Cause like, it was pretty apparent that it was going to break out to the extent that I was pulling up a chart of like moon phases to see like when the moon was going to be bright enough for night vision goggles to work. And that said February 24th. So uh, things like that, you know, where it was like, normally I don't have all the information in place to make predictions like that. It was just, I've been following Ukraine for 10 years and I had all my friends working with me on it and all my colleagues working with me on it. All of us reading from the same sheet of music that it made it pretty evident that a war was about to break out. And uh 
yeah. And so that was a pretty easy sell to get hired on full-time at the Institute <laughs> when like literally nobody else at the Institute thought the war would happen was the thing. <laughs> they were probably um, asking you for lottery numbers after that, weren't you? <laughs> they, they, essentially, I mean, they want me to do the same thing with other conflicts, which I'm happy to try, but it's a little difficult. <laughs> Line doesn't always strike twice. <laughs> it doesn't always strike twice. And it's like, I was not just a, an individual, right? That's the other thing that's important to remember is that like, it was not just me discovering all this stuff every day and being like, ooh, look, I got more satellite imagery. I don't have enough money for satellite imagery. So that wasn't me. That was other people, right? Like some people were doing signals intelligence. Some people were doing on the ground reporting, things like that. And all of that came together to, to paint this good picture. So lightning probably won't strike twice there. Yeah. That's like, well, I mean, for your career, let's hope so in a way. <laughs> yeah, exactly. It would, be, it would be nice to be correct more than once in my career. But, I mean, <laughs> We can only know. hope, mate. Yeah. I mean, you know, at mm. least at this point, I can say I was right once. and, and Exactly. Than you, no one can ever so. take that away from me. <laughs> right, right. I got that one and I got it in stone. So <laughs> that brings us nicely on to my next topic, which is the war in Russia and Ukraine. And specifically, when we initially chatted, this conversation was going to be more about the mutiny, which we'll guess we'll talk a little bit about now. So just tell the listeners about what's currently happening, the truth behind that particular event, and the general collective morale on both the Russian and Ukrainian forces sides. Yes, yeah, so basically the hottest point in the war right now is going to be down in Donetsk and Zaporizhia oblasts, basically, down near the south, near the Sea of Azov. The Ukrainians are really trying to make a push for the major city of Melitopol. It doesn't look like they're going to capture that by the end of this year. I think they had kind of wanted to with their summer offensive, but I think it's also important to temper expectations. What we saw last year with the with the lightning Ukrainian offensives, both in Kherson and Kharkiv, that's not going to happen against the defended position. The fact that the Ukrainian army is pushing back successfully against the Russian army and taking territory from it is in and of itself miraculous. If you went back two years and told us in two years there's going to be a war and Ukraine will not just stalemate Russia but will push them back, I would have told you you were full of it. Like I would have told you there's no way the Ukrainians will be able to fight against the, the second largest military on the planet or whatever we were all calling Russia at the time, right? And so... That's miraculous. With regard to the Wagner mutiny, basically what happened was the Russian Ministry of Defense is using Wagner as kind of disposable cannon fodder. And the Russian Ministry of Defense is inept at getting its own soldiers weaponry and ammunition and medical supplies and food. So you can imagine some second rate troops, they don't really care about how little their supply is working. So Wagner troops are, are starving. They're low on ammo. They're and former in, prisoners, by the way. Former, former prisoners. Kind of criminals in Russia. Yeah, Right. Not yeah. great guys to begin with in the worst parts of the war. And so basically they got fed up and their uh, chief, Prigozhin, was making more and more fiery statements condemning the Ministry of Defense and generals and whatnot. And then it looked like, according to Prigozhin, and, and what looks like was actually happening is that the Ministry of Defense was getting ready to disarm Prigozhin and Wagner and subsume them into the Russian military. So Wagner made a move first and took over the administration center of Rostov-on-Don and then started a march on Moscow and got within about two hours of the city before things were called off. It was fascinating because nobody really tried to stop them much from advancing on Moscow. I mean, there's um, literal videos of Russian soldiers surrendering to them. <laughs> right, exactly. And so we don't know how much of that was Russian soldiers having sympathy for Wagner and how much of that was orders from on high to not start a fight Basically, right? Because if you start the fight, then you're in a fight. But yeah. if you guys are still negotiating, you can still talk it out. 
It's yeah. a lot Whoever harder shoots to talk first, it's done. Yeah, yeah. Right. Yeah, if, yeah. if you exactly, it's harder to talk it out if someone starts shooting. So like, I think that's what was going on partially. But now, now we've seen Wagner sent to Belarus along with Prigozhin, their chief, and I don't think it's over with them. I don't think that's the last that we're going to see from them. But they've started focusing more on West Africa and Afro operations uh, since mm. the the insurrection attempt. And so whether or not we'll see them focus solely on international affairs or not is to be seen. But yeah, I think there's quite an important point here to make about the state of the current news cycle, because I think when it first emerged, I don't know how much this was popular in the mainstream narrative. But I guess if you were, say, quick on the gun as a person watching it, you could be like, oh, someone's finally had some backbone and is standing up against Putin, blah, blah, blah. Well, actually, these aren't white knights. They sanctioned the murder of Ukrainian children. They committed war crimes themselves. They only rebelled, as you said, because Putin was threatening to disarm them, essentially. So is there a really important point here about people not jumping on seemingly anything positive without examining the reasons often very dark behind the developments? Absolutely, yeah. And we see that a lot with Russia, right? We see like, oh, this guy is speaking out against Putin. Let's all throw our support behind him. And it's like, right, but he's, he's still a bastard. Because he's speaking freely in Putin's Russia in 2023. I have this feeling that like, if you have a real pathway to power and you're a real risk to Putin and you actually oppose him, you're probably out of the country or in prison by this point. Because that's not to knock Russians. That's to say that it's been 20 years. It's been 23 years of Putin in power. Right. Like imagine if Donald Trump had been president for 23 years. How much opposition would there be in the mainstream by then? I mean... And that's starting from a, a more open society than what Russia started with after the breakup of the Soviet Union. And it still wouldn't be great. That many years of, of authoritarianism has a way of shutting up society, right? And so the only people who are really willing to speak out are these pieces of shit who, for lack of a better term, right, who are like not mad that they're at war in Ukraine. They're mad that they're in, at war in Ukraine and not winning. Yeah. The gangster oligarchs haven't been killed, basically. Right, right. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> they, they, they never went away. In the weeks and months to come, I fear the scale of the war crimes that have been committed in Ukraine will just get larger and larger as hopefully Ukraine takes back the land and they're discovered. So the public know about, well, I hope the public know about the indiscriminate bombings of civilian targets on a pretty regular basis. The dam that was destroyed in Kherson flooding the region. I mean, people need to actually really understand how big that dam was to get a grip on how massive that disaster essentially was the mass graves near Bukha, the forced kidnapping of tens of thousands of ukrainian children can you just give the listeners a brief recap on those if they're new to them and the impact that this has had on the ukrainian people and i guess their collective mental health yeah well and, and it goes beyond so I, I took part in a report that declared that russia was committing genocide in Ukraine. I was one of the researchers on that report. It's called the New Lines Wallenberg Report, if people are interested in that. And so beyond the overt acts and like the physical acts of genocide, like you mentioned, the bombing of schools and hospitals and the forced adoption of children and things like that, there's the rhetorical side of it and the incitement to genocide, which is all these statements the Russian government has made essentially since 2000 that seemed like just Russia huffing and puffing about how mad they were at NATO. When connected with this war, are way more overtly genocidal. They're not just going to demilitarize Ukraine with their mission. They're going to denazify Ukraine and then uh, just in today air quotes, I saw, yeah, in air in quotes, air quotes yeah. right? Denazify Ukraine, which was expanded upon today by Dmitry Medvedev, the former president of Russia, who said that Ukrainianism itself is a disease and must be eradicated from the earth. 
that's like the most overtly genocidal thing you can do other than saying like let's gas some cockroaches there's like yeah. not a lot else Re- you can repl- say that's replace like... a word there for ukraine and people will get the idea yeah right exactly exactly <laughs> so like that's kind of the thing is that the soviets when they took over ukraine after the nazis were defeated in world war ii they implemented policies that were similar to their policies they had in, in ukraine and poland before the war which was not all that different from what was happening in German-held territory prior to the construction mm. of the death camps, which is to say that you wouldn't necessarily be put in a concentration camp in the Soviet Union for being Jewish. They wouldn't do that, but you would for being Polish or for being Ukrainian, which was somebody who was from like or a not big city. Wing. <laughs> right. Yeah, exactly. And so it was like, it was um, a little hauntingly familiar when Russian propagandists in the last 20 years have started saying like, you know, Ukraine is a mistake and the Ukrainians are, I've seen Russian propagandists make the Ukrainians out to be like irresponsible children who just need their parents to come and guide them or like a, a disrespectful housewife who needs to be smacked into submission, that kind of thing. It's very mm-hmm. toxic and gross and just it's like toxic and gross. And then when you look deeper into it, it's also genocidal, right? Yes. It's, it's toxic, gross behavior backed up by overt threats and acts of violence. Yeah. And so that taken together means that, yeah, they're absolutely committing genocide with a capital G. I want to emphasize that here. A lot of people think that, like, a genocide is just, like, a really bad war crime or just, like, if you kill enough people, it's a genocide. That's not necessarily true. Genocide is an intent to destroy in part or in whole a community or a people or a race, right? And so it's not just that they want to kill the Ukrainians and take their land. They want to kill the Ukrainians, take their land, destroy the Ukrainian churches, destroy Ukrainian history, erase the Ukrainian language, culture. Right. That's genocide. That's why they're coming into Ukraine with Russian flags and with Soviet flags is because they're saying it's the return of the Russian Empire. It's an imperial project, and that, that's what we're seeing is is the last gasps of the Russian Empire as it collapses in on itself. I saw an article in The Telegraph, which was actually from November 2022, which builds on what you've been saying, Aram, and it's called, I don't even want to actually repeat this title, but I'm going to go for it anyway. Castration, gang rape, forced nudity, how Russia's soldiers terrorized Ukraine with sexual violence, which essentially detailed how Russian soldiers have, like you said, terrorized the Ukrainian population with sexual violence as a weapon of war. We saw that against with the Houthis and the Tutsis in uh, Rwanda. So castration, genital electrocution and sodomy of men, gang rape of women and forced nudity. So I think the public might not always be aware of this, but is this probably, I'd say, the biggest reason why Ukrainians have hardened their views towards ordinary Russian citizens and just Russia generally in the attitude of, if you don't speak up about this, you are dead to us and no better than the soldiers. Yeah, I mean, that and... I mean, they were still negotiating up until they found the, the heinous the crimes. Graves. Of, right, exactly. And yeah, then it was just yeah. like, all right, if that's how you're going to play it, then there's no negotiating to be done here, right? I mean, there's absolutely... Like, with the Ukrainian, the female soldiers that have been taken prisoner, there's absolutely sexual violence committed against them. But what a lot of the, the women have reported is that as much as they were violated by the Russian captors, it was the men who were raped at a higher rate than the women. And the Russians would say straight up, they were saying it's to destroy you as a man and destroy you as a person. And that's right. That's like this dark, disgusting hatred that like you can say what you want about Western wars around the world. Typically they weren't driven by a genocidal hatred. They were driven by hatred. Sure. But not a desire to destroy a culture and destroy people and to destroy individuals. And that's why what we're seeing is so so very different. And I think it's important to remember that, at least in the United States, 
1943 and 1944, at the height of World War II, there was a good 30 to 35 percent of people who thought we shouldn't be fighting the war. That like uh, the reports of what's happening to the Jews are exaggerated. Like things are not really that bad. Uh, just bad things happen in war. And so I think 10 years from now, looking back at this war, everybody or the majority of people will be for, in the same position you and I are in, where it's like very clear as day obvious that a genocide has been committed. I think a lot of people aren't there yet, but I think when the war ends, they'll see. And when Melitopol and Mariupol are retaken, people are going to see, you know, tens of thousands of people dead or missing. Like, that's not something you can just ignore, you know? And at least, I mean, Sevastopol, there's other places that will probably be looked right. at in that, in that sense as well. Um, right. Yeah. The article, before we move on, I, I have to do this because I feel like I have responsibility to. It's pretty grim to read and it details rape of children as young as four years old women as old as 80 and in a comparison so after the war in the former yugoslavia i don't know a lot about the war details itself but what i have read about it is that there are still women and men coming forward to this day to say they have been raped or sexually abused 30 years on and i know from my own experience male sexual disclosure of abuse is about 20 years so do you think this will become a generational shame for Europe, for the West, if we don't continue to support Ukraine in the aftermath, let alone the war itself? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. I think that it's on all of us in the Western world and in the world in general to support the Ukrainians against against what's happening, of course, you know, with weapons and whatnot, but also to understand that like, this is going to be a long fight and they're going to need a lot of help after the war, not just physically rebuilding, but, but emotionally and mentally rebuilding. And they're going to need a lot of under, understanding and sympathy. And it's going to be a, a generations long problem. And and it's going to ingrain itself in Ukrainian culture, just like eating really fatty foods has, right? Because the Ukrainians were starved off in the 30s. So you eat food with lots of fat in it. And have right? children very quickly. And have children very quickly. Yeah, right. Yeah, yeah. Exactly. Right. Th these are things that happen for a reason to different cultures. Cultures develop these traits for yeah, a reason. Yeah, right. And so there's going to be this psychological trauma that's going to be built into the into the Ukrainians for generations to come because of this and because of what the Russians have done. And there's always been disagreement from Ukrainians about the whole Russian-Ukrainian brotherhood thing where, oh, we're a big happy family. A lot of Ukrainians have said for a while that they're not a big happy family, but there wasn't outright animosity toward their Slavic brothers until 2014 and especially 2022 and then the crimes after the war started where it's just like, okay, you know, we're not actually the same people. We're not the same people. You want us to be the exact same. I get what that means now, but we're not brothers, right? And so it's, it's like if your brother tries to cut your hair and, and make you look exactly like him, make you a cookie cutter image of him, your brother's not looking out for your interests at that point. Your brother's trying to make a repeat of himself, right? And mm. so it's like, it's very on the nose now. I have to remain politically impartial, but what I do want to ask you is, considering you're American, there has been a move on the American right, particularly in the dissident right, I would say more so, of a explicitly anti-Ukraine stance, I'm not really sure, but definitely scepticism. And we saw a Republican presidential candidate, Vivek Ramaswamy, who I actually read his book, very disappointed to hear what he said on CNN, where he essentially said that Putin should keep parts of Ukraine, whether you can debate that is another issue. He also said he would block Ukraine from joining NATO, visit Putin in Moscow and quote said, our goal should not be for Putin to lose. Now, I don't know whether he'd ever say that to Vladimir Klitschko's face or Vitaly, who said on BBC News that he'd killed six men on, at the start of the war. <laughs> right, right. But what do you make of that? Why has this happened on the American right, which previously, in decades gone by, has been pretty hawkish, actually? Um, 
without devolving too much into partisan politics here, really what it's become in America for a lot of people is just the opposite of what the other guy wants. The polarization, so, it's been a symbolic right. of if, that. If, right, if sure. Joe Biden were against supporting Ukraine, they would be saying, why aren't we doing more to support Ukraine? Why are we getting caught with our pants down? Why are we looking so weak on the world stage? What's wrong with you, Joe? But since he's actually doing something, they have to say, oh, we don't want to support him. We think that you know Ukraine should give up some territory for peace, which, again, Dmitry Medvedev came out and said, that's a nice offer, but no, we don't want some territory. All of Ukraine is disputed territory, and it shouldn't exist. So it's like the Russians don't even want that fantasy pipe dream of land. No. They want the whole thing. So it's like not a realistic ask on either side. And so as much as those voices alarm me because they very much are a risk and, and could take power, I am heartened by the fact that uh, last numbers I checked, it was like sixty high 60s, 70% of Democrats and 50-something percent of Republicans are supportive of sending more weapons to Ukraine. So like the average... American, left or right, says that this is the right thing to do. There is a fringe that says that it's wrong, but as a historian, I know there's always a fringe. There was a fringe in World War II that thought we should be on Hitler's side. Doesn't mean I need to get too anxious about them. I need to keep them in mind and keep them as a threat in mind. But I think that what's more threatening and more risky with individuals like that is what they'll do on a domestic front to their targets that they have here to weak people within the US. I think they're huffing and puffing about Ukraine because there's just something to be contrarian about. Before we move on, is there anything from your research that you think the listeners should know about what's happening in Ukraine right now that hasn't been reported as much in the mainstream? I just think it's important for us to not get numb to what's happening in Ukraine. And I don't mean like overtly numb where you're like, oh, turn it off. I don't care anymore. I mean, like where you hear about another bombing, the most recent one in Cherniv where it killed seven people and wounded hundreds or wounded, yeah, wounded like a hundred people and killed seven. And even as a conflict researcher, even as somebody who's very passionate and, and interested in Ukraine, my thought to that was like, okay, but how does that stand out from last week's bombing of a big building? And to me, it stands out because they were different people who died in a different city. But I'm talking from the average person's perspective who doesn't know the difference between Cherniv and Odessa, right? They don't really, they don't care. How does that stand out? And I guess my point is don't let it all run together. Remember that even though these are big numbers and big statistics, these are all individuals. These are all individual people who are suffering. And it's really on us to make sure that the Ukrainians have what they need to win this war. We have... I mean, speaking as an American, we have, I looked up the numbers last night, we have 2,400 Abrams tanks in service, plus 2,000 more just sitting in the desert that we will never put in service because they're older models. And even if we like went to war with China, our tanks don't float very well. They're not good boats. So we're not going to use them against China. Like these tanks are never going to do anything else other than sit in the desert. So like, why aren't they being sent to Ukraine, right? Like there's so much more that can be being done to end the war quickly that's not being done. I think that's the important thing for people to remember is that like, speak up and make your voices heard. Let your representatives know that you think that we are doing the right thing. And we should be doing it more because so often all they hear are the fringe voices that are against it. And so they need to hear that the average American or, or European, wherever you are, right, uh, is supportive of Ukraine. Let's move on to industry issues because the main two that you wanted to discuss before we talk about a different one is access and class especially in conflict journalism. So what is your perspective on this and the people you've encountered in the field, which you have a opinion on, which we discussed off air? Yeah, I mean, 
of course, this is not to generalize everybody in the field, but somebody like our mutual friend Jake is a rarity in the field where they're like somebody who is willing to do background research on a topic, but also willing to go out and actually confront the topic. But also, from what I understand with him, he doesn't come from a background of my daddy was a big journalist and everybody knows his name, no. right? Like it's not, it doesn't work that way for him. And a lot of people in the journalistic or research careers, it does work that way. We know them because their dad got them a, a shoe in a position in. And the way that I describe it to people is that the policy and journalism world, they overlap a lot with like the political world. And if yep. you remember back in high school, who were the kids that ran for class officer? Not to denigrate any class officers listening to this, I was one myself. But like, as somebody who ran for class office, the people who ran for it were kind of a little self-righteous, a little full of themselves. Very much the kind of students that would like shake your hand and know your name, but you knew you weren't really friends, but they thought that because they knew your name that you were friends, right? Like that kind of thing happens a lot in this world where it's just like people basically treating each other like they're cards in a Rolodex. And I fundamentally disagree with that both as like a good professional and also as a human being and that's why i have respect for people like jake who are able to treat people as human and not just as a number but also truly build relationships with people that they not just work with but that they interview and i think that mm -hmm. that bears itself out in his reporting but also the reporting of a lot of his colleagues formerly at vice you know back when vice news was was edgy and, a and thing. up and coming and, and a thing right was that like these vice Good, journalists like, high quality journalism right, right you get it exactly <laughs> like some vice journalists were dog shit obviously but a lot of them built these good relationships with people like you see simon ostrovsky's coverage of the war in ukraine in 2014 and the guy like knew people on the ground they were his friends. These were individuals and colleagues of his that were like real relationships that obviously he didn't treat people like cards in a Rolodex. And so that's just a very toxic culture in this realm. And I try to avoid it as best as possible. And it, it's difficult at times, though, because like you get so many new people that come into your world at once or you have you have a new project you start on and they want you to meet five experts in the field. That's like, ah, yeah, we got to all pretend that we're friends and homies and we know each other. All right. You know, but, uh, I hate the fakeness, man. I, I hate it so hate much, it man. So much. It's, it's the worst. And I think part of my problem in school was that I was not very good at being fake. I was at first with administrators and stuff, but then like what I, after you've gone to three schools and you've heard the same spiel from administrators three times, and then they end up being really fake to you. You're just like, Oh, that's what we're doing. No, I don't have energy to pretend, dude. I just don't like mm. you. Yeah, <laughs> you know, it's like I, if, if I don't like you or if I like you, I'm going to tell you I like you. I want to be your friend. But like, if I don't like you, I'm just going to ignore you. You know, fair like, enough. yeah, no, fair enough. I'm too long in the tooth to be like pretending to be nice to people and whatever. So there we right. go. Let's move on to the final topic before we move on, mate, which is an issue that I spoke about with another conflict academic called Dr. Joe Whittaker. And it was about the mental health impact of viewing quite horrific and traumatic content as part of his job and obviously as part of your job. However, the angle you took with this is that you told me that there is this weird industry belief that if you don't do this, especially at the start, you are somehow less of a researcher. Can you just unpack that for me? Yeah, I mean, and it's not like a, a from on high belief. It's not like directors in the industry are saying, you know, everybody needs to watch beheading videos to understand things. But it's like this common belief among up and coming researchers, at least that like, Nah, man, if you're not doing the original deep research, if you're not sitting in an Islamic State Telegram channel and watching their releases as they come out, you're not really a researcher. And that's just 
not really true especially in 2023 when we have the plethora of sources that we have like i don't need to watch a beheading video to know what happened right all i have to see is like islamic state released a new video the example i think of is i had a friend come over one time many years ago right after isis burned that jordanian pilot they put him in a cage and oh him god fire. yeah i remember that yeah. right and my friend came over and he came over like right after I'd gotten done watching it because I didn't know what I was getting into when I watched it. I was a pretty new ISIS researcher at the time. Um, and so he comes over and he sees the title on the screen and it was called Combustion of the Delicate. And I'll always remember my friend goes, I don't need to watch that, dude. I know who the Delicate are. I don't need to see him combust. He goes, we're the Delicate, man. Come on. And it was like kind of funny, but also like his point was true, right? If you see a video called like Islamic State Fighters Behead Kufr Soldier or something, you don't need to watch it to be like, okay, that's a guy dying. Didn't need to watch him die to know that that's another video of a guy dying. Okay. The difference is you do need to watch certain videos to be... To Clued understand up. what's yeah, going of course. on. Yeah, up, yeah, right. yeah, yeah, yeah. But ISIS was really good at doing this. They would release an hour-long video and it would be like video of people walking around the caliphate and like some peacetime to have like a barbecue and then like some statistics about their fighting and then just beheading videos and then combat footage and then more beheadings. And so like, do I need to watch the beheadings? No, I can skip that. The combat footage, that might be important for me to see, right? So maybe turn that on. And if I'm not listening for something, if I'm listening for certain gunfire or listening for explosions, keep the audio on. If I'm not explicitly using the audio in the video for the research, mute it. Because audio is so much more horrific than video. And I know that sounds weird, but it's one thing to see a muted video of somebody dying, but then you hear the audio of them dying and it's so much more traumatic. So that's the advice that I give people is mute the video if you don't have to hear it. Don't make it full screen. It doesn't need to look lifelike. Make it a small screen while you're, while you're previewing through it. Or a lot of YouTube these days, you can scroll through the bottom of the video and preview the video first, right? Preview it. And if you see people with their heads cut off, maybe don't watch that one. Maybe you don't need to watch that one. Let somebody else who's more seasoned and, and, and knows how to handle it a little bit better, let them do the research and tell you what was in that video, and you can cite them. You don't need to watch every ISIS release. You don't need to watch every video from Russia or Ukraine, right? What impact does viewing those videos have on your, not just your mental health, but your outlook on life or your view of humanity? Does that get affected? Absolutely. And I think a lot of people think that it would just make you depressed. And I mean, it definitely does. It makes you very sad. What I noticed is that it makes you angry and spiteful too. It makes you hate people. I mean, it really, really makes you hate people a lot. Like, not like, oh, people are the worst. They're in front of me in traffic. But like, makes you think the worst of everybody else. Like, oh, that guy over there, he's a piece of shit. And he'd kill people if he could. He'd torture. And it's like, no, he wouldn't. People wouldn't do that. But when you see this kind of horrific footage from the worst examples of societal collapse around the world you start to believe that like I mean, that's what people are capable of doing on like on a daily basis and it gives you this really sour toxic outlook on life that is not just personally detrimental and annoying to deal with socially when it happens to friends um not trying to diminish it but it's also it makes you a worse researcher like it, it straight up it doesn't make you a better researcher it makes you a worse researcher if you're numb to seeing people getting their heads cut off like there's something wrong with you and you need professional help immediately that's the bottom line to it right as we reflect on your journalism journey so far mate what has it taught you about yourself um it's honestly it's taught me that one i'm not dumb as hell which was something that I had really <laughs> internalized in high school and like undergrad was that like, no, man, I can't even pass a class. I must be dumb as shit. Wow. And I, I distinctly remember when I got kicked out of my first undergrad 
it's it's a funny story, but it's also sad, so it's just a warning. I'm standing in the parking lot of the dorm. I've got all my shit in the back of this trailer, right? It's all packed in. And I'm thinking, man, I'm the dumbest person on this campus right now. I'm the only one getting kicked off campus for being too stupid. I'm literally, of the 5,000 people on this campus, the stupidest one here. And then I look up at the dorm, and I hear this frat boy say to his friend, he's like, oh, man, what's that on your dick? And I'm just like, man, I'm, I'm dumber than that. I'm dumber than that. Like, whatever that is that's happening in there, I'm dumber than that. And it was like, that was the lowest moment for me, right? Was realizing that, like, damn. I'm the dumbest person on this campus. And then this journalism career is a, a year later at the next undergraduate school where the teachers are like, please teach the class what's happening in Ukraine. It's like, oh, maybe I'm not dumb as hell. So it's given me like a little bit more self-worth and a better outlook on life to know that like, I'm not just learning this stuff in a vacuum. I'm not just learning it for me. I'm learning it so I can teach other people about this stuff and hopefully stop things from getting worse on like a small scale, even if that's just on a local scale, you know? And that's something I really believe in too, is that like, we all have to help those around us. If that means helping a guy out who needs dinner, that's one thing. If it means teaching somebody about a, a conflict that's scaring them, that's another thing. I mean, I, my other background is wildland firefighting. And I sat down with a friend today and explained to her why the fires have been doing what they've been doing in the West lately and why it's not arsonists and, and lasers in space setting fires. It's not a conspiracy theory. I know you're scared. I know things are terrifying, so let me explain to you why they're happening so you at least have the tools necessary to deal with what's happening in the world. And I think that's what we're seeing a lot of today is that these conspiracies are taking hold more and more because less and less people are actually doing the research to figure out why things are happening. And uh, that's detrimental to us all. We've talked all about Aram, the conflict journalist. I want to dive a bit deeper now and talk about your own mental health journey, mate. So I ask all my special guests this question first. Take me back to early life, teenage years, and were there any early mental health experiences? Who's the Aram we meet here? Yeah, I mean, so I have struggled with depression most of my life, as long as I can remember. It got pretty bad in high school. I would have pretty regular suicidal thoughts. It was just a lot of self-loathing, self-doubt, that kind of thing. And then it got worse as I got older, and it wasn't until I was about 22 that I was diagnosed not only with depression, but with anxiety and ADHD as well. And so I started getting medicated for those after that, but it's kind of a crapshoot, right? Like no one knows the answer to every depression, and so they gave me meds that sometimes helped and sometimes didn't. And so it took me a couple of years to get meds that actually worked for me pretty well. And so it's just been like a constant fight with pharmacies and doctors to get my medication as I need it, insurance companies to pay for it, but also with just understanding that like my brain is wired a different way than a lot of other people's brains, and that's just something I'm going to have to work with for the rest of my life. It's not like a bad thing. It's not a negative thing. It's just the way it works, and I have a lot of friends who are at the beginning of their mental health journeys right now, and they don't understand. They talk about how depressed they are and how they want to die and how things are rough, and and I just have to tell them, like, it's like if you were born with with a defective leg, no one can really ask you to sprint like the average Straight person Straight away, can. yeah. Right, exactly. So that, that's not realistic. Like, you were born with something different than what everybody else has going on, and that doesn't make you worse. That guy with a defective leg is not dumb. He's not mm. a bad guy. He's not an evil person. He just has a defective leg, right? So your brain is wired a little bit, little bit differently. That just means that you're going to – this is a disease you're going to fight for most of your life or for the rest of your life. It's going to be a struggle you have to fight, but it's something that makes you who you are. Mm. It's part of your story. 
How did you feel when you were diagnosed? Was it validation? Was it relief? Was it something completely different? It was kind of funny, actually. I mean, the depression was like, no shit, obviously. I, yeah, of course. I imagine that. Yeah. Yeah. I was like, yeah, I, I know I'm depressed, actually. Thank you, doctor. <laughs> but the, the ADHD one was they gave me like a computer test and the doctor goes, wow, I've never seen somebody score that highly for likelihood. Now it's just like, well, <laughs> damn. Like... <laughs> so, uh, so that was fun. And then, of course, then they prescribed me Adderall and initially put me on way too high of a dose. But now it's just the dose that I need because it's mm-hmm. been 10 years, but way too high of a dose at first. And not that I had bad side effects from it. I just stayed up for three days and on the third day taught a classroom of children how to give CPR at the middle school. Like that's just, you know, I mean, that's just how it went uh, at first. And so that was part of the journey, though, was realizing that like, oh, all these educational issues I've had all my life, all these issues of focus and getting projects done, that's not just me being lazy there was a chemical imbalance and now that it's fixed there's so much that i want to do and so much i want to spend my time working on right and so i had to like temper that and moderate that a bit but yeah i mean the diagnoses were not too surprising to me the adhd was a little surprising but not too much and then as i've gotten older you know i've just realized like there's certain stuff that'll probably never be diagnosed that like they don't really have a term for or or whatever but like i am a firm believer in more people getting mental health care and and treatment and i think that a lot of people have undiagnosed issues and that there are a lot of issues that we can't diagnose that people do have that they need to to work through and that was definitely true for me too it's definitely helped to know that like it's like when i run out of my medication and i start getting really depressed one of the best ways that my friends around me can help me and support me through that stuff is tell me hey dude you ran out of your medication four days ago and that's all it takes it's like oh wait yeah this is a chemical imbalance This isn't just how the world sucks for me. There's something wrong with me. I don't have everything I need to function properly right now. That tracks. Okay, now it's not another reason to hate myself because I can't function. It's another reason to be frustrated with the situation. But, right, it manifests itself a little bit differently, I guess. One thing that surprised me, one of the biggest things that surprised me about doing this podcast, Aram, is the amount of journalists and artists, music artists, I should say, that have got diagnosed ADHD or undiagnosed ADHD, or perhaps they might have traits of it or kind of suspect they have it. Is there something about these industries or fields that attracts people to them or the other way around or something else? I want to try and get to the heart of perhaps why there is a prominence or a a predisposition perhaps for, for this field to be filled with people who are on that spectrum or on that level of diagnosis. I think it's partially that those kind of people are drawn to these fields but also i think it's that those are the kind of people that you're more likely to hear about so like in the open source research world there are the big names the belling cats and the new york times visual investigation teams and stuff like that right but there's also myriad companies that do open source research like cookie cutter assembly line open source research where it's like oh you are the director of security operations at Bank of America. Hire my company. We have a hundred analysts sitting on social media all day, scanning social media for threats to Bank of America. And we'll let you know if we see a threat. We'll let you know if there's a shooting near your bank, whatever. That can appeal to people who are just looking for a job. They're looking for a job. Maybe they're interested in open source research, but they're really just looking for a job. The kind of person who combines open source research with journalism and, and the way that like someone, again, like Jake has done, that shows that there's more than just like an interest in a topic. There's a passion for that topic too. And that was something that I saw in grad school was that like 
sure, all of my peers had an understanding of foreign policy, but how many of them wanted to talk about it after school, right? And the ones that want to talk about it after school typically were on the neurodiverse side of things um, and because it just becomes like everything that you're interested in. It becomes your whole passion, right? And because of that, you can understand a topic on a really deep level. I remember when I started earnestly studying Afghanistan, because I had followed it for years, but it wasn't like Iraq that I had like read books on my whole life. Afghanistan, I didn't really start researching until maybe eight years ago. I started really digging into it. It's got like a whole shelf of books on it. And then I would like listen to Afghan music and go to this local Afghan restaurant and then like had Afghan news on the TV, like totally immersed myself in it. And I loved it because my ADHD at the time was telling me that's what I needed to hyper-focus on. And that's this maybe was, a little This more... was going to be my next question, mate. What positives has the ADHD brought you? Because we've already yeah, talked about the challenges. Definitely that, yeah, yeah. There's definitely that side of it where like if you learn how to work with it, it's actually, you can use it somewhat effectively. Not always, but somewhat effectively. You just have to learn what your scheduling is, I guess. You have to plan around like the way that your brain works. I know that my brain doesn't really kick on no matter what time I wake up, I could wake up at 4 a.m. or I could wake up at noon. It's not really going to kick in for the first three or four hours of the day. I'll be awake. I'll be present and I like, can grunt and, and whatever. But with the exception of like today where I've known this call was coming for a while, typically when I wake up in the morning, I'm not really at my best, even if I take my meds. right? And so I just know that's part of me and that might be ADHD and that might just be the way my brain works. And so I've learned that like if I really want to get a project done, wait till later in the week, later in the evening for whatever reason, that's when it clicks better, you know, and that's just not always useful when the assignment is due on a Monday afternoon. Um, but It's all about knowing how your brain works, mate, isn't it? Right, exactly, exactly. Because mm. that's the thing is that like, as much as we all act like we've got things figured out, we, and by we, I mean humanity, we really don't know what we're doing. And so like, we don't really know what works for everybody. We don't know that waking up at 9am every day and getting to work, you know, going to work at 9am every day is the most efficient. Like we don't know what works for everybody mentally. So everybody kind of has to find their strengths and their pathways to being successful and, and, and work at it. And that takes time. And I wish there was like a shortcut answer for it. There's no but shortcuts, bro. There's no shortcut. And if there was, you wouldn't believe me if I told you. So like, exactly. that's exactly. right. That's how it works. So I want to move on to one of the universities you went to mate which is a now very infamous college called the Evergreen State College. And you studied here during its quite infamous period between 2014 and 2017, where I guess it became known to the wider public consciousness outside of America. So for the listeners who don't know, it started when a professor, now very famous, called Brett Weinstein, objected to a debate demanded by the student, dictate, sorry, not debate, dictat, by the students that all white students should leave the campus on a given day to support ethnic minority students now brett thought it was divisive and vocally said that and was then surrounded by angry students outside his classroom and effectively held hostage where even the campus police couldn't get to him can you just give the listeners what that environment felt like at that time the other incidents that took place and how you felt as a fellow student i guess because you're not someone who would fall into that camp <laughs> It was so dumb, dude. Like, all around, it was one of the dumbest things I've ever been near. And I'm just mad at everybody involved in it, honestly. Like, I'm I'm, <laughs> I'm mad at the students because, cause like, the reality was, I didn't even know that this whole thing was going on on campus, the whole, like, white students leave campus. It was such a low-key event that I didn't even hear about it. 
until it became a national talking point. But like the idea wasn't that like white kids weren't allowed on campus. It was just like, cause we have this day of absence in the U S where they that say like, okay, yeah. right. They say like students of color are invited to not come to campus to show white students what it would be like if they weren't here. And so Evergreen was just trying to flip that and be edgy, which was stupid. Like it, it was a stupid, I don't really know what the point was that they were trying to make with it. I get the day of, the original day of absence, I can clearly see the point of it. Oh, look, what would happen if none of your friends of color were around? This is what it would look like. Okay, right. But in a place like Olympia, Washington, where like most people are white, <laughs> not like 60%, I mean like 85% yeah, of people yeah, yeah. are white, right? Like, I don't know what point you're trying to make other than most of us are not black when you say yeah. like so that was a dumb thing to do but then brett weinstein was he went on tucker carlson and and he knew that he was going to go on tucker carlson and cause a big fight at the school and then the students i guess like, he would say that because no one else would no one else would listen to him it. right yeah. it just seemed at a certain point like both sides wanted this conflict they wanted to to engage in this mudslinging competition and it was just as someone who was just trying to go to school it was real annoying. And then, like, my roommate at the time thought that it would be thought that it would be prudent to film the students yelling at the school president, which I'm sure you've seen the footage of because it's the famous footage. The Adam Waffen division. What are you doing, it. George? What are you yeah. doing? <laughs> right. Where they're yelling at him to, like, keep his hands at his side and stuff. And oh, like, my God, that stunk. Like, oh, my God, that stunk so much. It did. And it was just like, I get the point that they're trying to make that, like... Uh, do you, though? I don't. <laughs> I, I get, like, what happened was they took a bunch of classes on institutional racism and started recognizing the patterns of racism around them and thought, this is the time to fight. But, like, I'm telling you, as somebody who's from the area, like, the cops at Evergreen State College weren't the issue there were like four of them to begin with <laughs> and they're just security guards you want to be mad at the lapd fine you want to be mad at minneapolis pd fourth they did to george floyd fine but like and this is a major point of contention i have with a lot of my my friends is that like if we're protesting the actions of a police department protest that police department if minneapolis police killed george floyd then protest the minneapolis police department but when your local cops show up even though they're not necessarily on your side at that protest, don't treat them like they themselves are those killers because that will shape the way that the discussion and the event happens, right? Like if everybody is convinced that those cops showing up from a thousand miles away are killers, they're going to treat them like killers and they're going to say heinous things to them and those cops are going to do heinous things back and it doesn't help the situation. People really need to understand that like be it police violence or or in politics, you'll see like, oh, look, there's some Proud Boys over there with some Patriot Prayer people, with some generic Trumpers, with some other conservatives. They're all Nazis. And it's like, they're not all Nazis. And when you lump them all in as one, as all Nazis are all as corrupt cops, you make them stronger. You don't just look like a fool to them when they know like, well, I'm not actually a Nazi. I'm just, that guy is, but I'm not. You make the Nazis stronger because it's like, well, now there's a thousand Nazis instead of just seven of them, Right. And so people, as difficult as it is, we need to remember to take things on an individual basis as much as possible. Because like mm. every individual who's motivated to either violence as a police officer or violence as a militiaman or, a, you know, whatever, they have a unique pathway to that violence. And if you can figure out a way to cut the legs out from under that, that journey, you might actually save some lives. One of my favorite YouTube channels is run by a guy called Benjamin Boyce, who made his name through documenting the 
entire period of the Evergreen State College protests. It was about 20 to 25 videos. And you can feel the tension and fear a lot of the students have from their peers who are involved in the protests. And that's without their peers walking around campus with baseball bats, as was pictured and taken as picture evidence. I don't think you would be, but were you scared at any point? No. And that's partially because I'm like a physically large dude that dresses like (laughs) Hank Hill. And so people just either don't see me or ignore me or ask me for directions to like the automotive section in the store because they think I work (laughs) there. That's like the interaction I get from most people. But the other thing was I was I was doing like at home learning. So I wasn't even going to campus all that often at the time. Yeah, like I it was was pretty easy for me to ignore it. But I don't think that there was necessarily an atmosphere of overt fear on campus of like the left wing students hurting anybody. But there was this fear of just like, I don't yeah, yeah, I don't want to be character number one today or whatever they say. Like, I don't want to be the yeah. the, the, the main character. The main character today. on Twitter or whatever it is. Yeah, right, yeah, and yeah. and especially at, at a place like Evergreen, whatever's on Twitter was a big deal to the school too, and so you could be canceled. Ooh, and like, I reached a certain point where like, especially with those protests, where like I had some students come to me and they said like, hey, there was a Black Lives Matter protest last night. Why weren't you there? Like, do you not support your friends of color? And I remember this argument happened on Facebook and like three black friends of mine were like, fuck you. I was going to say, very fuck off. Of us. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Right. He doesn't need to go march at some, some performative event to like show that he supports people. He's Probably there for, for the me. white people as well. By the That's way. what it was. It was just a bunch of white kids giving the speeches and stuff. So it's like, no, I didn't need to go to that little protest to show where I stood. But then fast forward a couple of years and I had a black friend in grad school who got pulled over wrongfully by the highway patrol in California. And they were like threatening to pull him out of the car and, and like take him away. And I recognized, you know, that he was having a miscommunication issue because the cop wasn't really being that much of a dick. But my friend was also neither side was listening to each other. I went to a police traffic stop and talked to the police, like just on the side of the highway. That's what I do for my friends of color is I put myself on the line when I need to, to help them out. That means that I'm not going to go to every protest and hold up a sign because I don't need to prove to people at the protests that I believe in these things because I know where I stand. Mm. I know what I believe in and I will fight what I need to fight, right? But so much of what was happening there was just performative and it was very frustrating to me because like we talked about earlier, I can't handle the fakeness. Like, Oh man, it's so... Oh. Yeah. I think I would have been exactly the same as you if I was in that situation personally. Just I'd yeah, probably, probably just told him to fuck off. Like who are just you? fuck off and then I also <laughs> just tried to keep my head down. I was just like, I yeah. don't need to I'll tell him to fuck off, but I don't need to be the loudest one telling them that. Like yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> right. You know? Or was it just like who are you? Sorry? Like Pretty much, yeah. I was just like, I yeah, man, my friends who know me know what I know know where I stand. I don't really need to prove myself to you. Like Exactly. Before you went to Evergreen, mate, you were at a university in Oregon, as you said, and this didn't go well for a few reasons, and you eventually had to drop out. But at the same time, your mum also died, and you were fired from your job because it wasn't your fault, but you took some days off to grieve for her, essentially, and not that many either. What was your mental health like? Yeah, exactly. What was your mental health like here and that grieving process? Not great. Um... 2014 was was a very much a low point in my life, but it was coincidental in the sense that my mother passed away summer 2014, right as the fighting got really intense in Ukraine. And so I had something to focus on and to distract myself with. And so I remember hyper-focusing on Ukraine that summer and reading all about it, trying to sort of numb 
the pain and you know, I can't think about how sad I am if I'm reading about Ukraine. And so I read all the materials there were on it and I started thinking like, okay, well now I need, what if there was a big war in Ukraine and the Russians had their old tanks? I need to be able to identify a T-55. And so I started studying all the different tanks and stuff. And that really gave me something to focus on for a couple of years while my depression morphed and changed itself based on what had happened. And so that I think both gave me a, a distraction and a way to like avoid thinking about the depression, but also gave me like a, a pretty useful tool for life, which is like when I'm really upset about something and I'm really depressed, I'll accept it. I'll go to my room. I'll pout for a little bit, you know, let the depression flow through me and then ask myself like, okay, but what would I rather be learning about right now? If I weren't depressed, if I weren't in my bed on the verge of tears, wouldn't I rather be reading about Iraq? Wouldn't I rather be watching a documentary or something? And then you ask yourself like, what's stopping you from doing that? Physically nothing. And so it's just, I got to get in the right mood to do it. And so you, and it's just a matter of fighting yourself to get in the right mood. Right. And so mm. that was kind of a long answer to that. But yeah. At this point, you are without a job. You've just lost your mum, And you've also lost a lot of mates as well, because you've had to drop out of the university. A, was this your most difficult moment? And B, looking back, can you see how a lot of boys and young men can become quite lost if these types of life events happen to them and they don't have the tools to manage them and overcome them like you did. Oh yeah, absolutely. It was the roughest point in my life. And, um, I was very lucky in the sense that I've always been good at finding new social circles. So it didn't take me long to find a new group of friends at Evergreen. And I found a lot of friends online too, that I could hang out with, but I got lucky in the sense that my dad was in a position financially to support me at school, despite the fact that I was so depressed, I flunked my first term at Evergreen too. Like I just flunked out of under undergrad at one school and then I go to Evergreen and I flunk my first term and it was like, well, shit, you know, what do we do here? But that's where the plug would have been pulled for a lot of people, right? I was able to, to go for another term and prove myself that second term. And so it's absolutely clear to me how certain people can fall in with, with the wrong way of thinking or with wrong crowds in situations like this, because like when you're down and out, you're looking for anybody to help you out. And that's part of the problem, right, that we see in our society is that, like, the worst people with the worst ideas are very willing to give them out freely. Um, and, like, the stuff that's worthwhile and makes you a better person is harder to work for at times. And that makes it difficult. There's a barrier to entry for a lot of people. And some people give up. And it's really sad because if they were given the same resources I was given, perhaps not as many of them would have given up. And... I was not given that many resources, like comparatively, like all things considered, we're not a rich family. My family's not rich, right? Like we're, we're middle-class. So more people given a little more financial opportunity or, or social opportunity. And I think that we'd see less detrimental social movements. Definitely. Tell me about your mom now. What was she like? What was your relationship like with her? We were pretty close. My dad worked 7am to 6pm. So my mom was pretty much the one that was home all day when she babysat for the first 12 years of my life so she was literally home all day you know with a bunch of kids and stuff and so we were, we were pretty close and then as i got older we kind of drifted apart but part of that was i was i mean from her perspective i was kind of a piece of shit like i i just flunked out of school i lost my job i lost a job previously the year before and then i flunked out of school she died i lost another job she didn't know about the second one obviously but um yeah so we were we were close but I had definitely let her down and I felt that very much, especially after she passed that like, oh damn, she died when I was at my lowest. Like, that's not great. But 
that's part of life. Like that's, she was my mom. Like she wasn't grading me based on who I was when she died. She was a mother. Mothers love their children pretty much universally. Unless your kid's like, I don't know if Hitler's mom loved him. I, I imagine not. Maybe. I don't know. But she probably loved baby Hitler. Yeah, right? yeah, and that's right. kind of the point, right? Is like, it doesn't matter what, what a piece of shit I was by the time she died. She still loved me for who I was because I was still her baby, right? And so, like, mm. that will always be there. It just sucks that it had to go out on the note that it did. But, yeah, we were always we were always a pretty close family. And I've handled it better, I think, than my sisters have. They have both not handled the loss of my mother very well. And I think that that's because a number of reasons. But I've always been more realistic than both of them. And I don't mean that as an insult. I just mean... I've always been more grounded in reality. And I also, part of that was my mom was sick for a number of years. Uh, she had to get a kidney transplant in like 2010, I think, 2011, and then finally passed away in 2014. And so she was sick for years. And we knew that she wasn't going to live a long life already. We knew that the kidney transplant had bought her 15, 20 years at most. Right. And so like I'd already told myself, you're losing your mom early. That's the way it's going to be. Not that you can ever prepare yourself entirely for it, but you can kind of lessen the impact a bit by seeing the writing on the wall. I knew that like human life is fragile and that she could be taken at any time. And so I, with that in mind, and I carry this with other people in my social life too, is that like try to make sure that your friends and family know that you love them, that you care about them. You don't want your best friend to die and be like, man... I never told him I really loved him. I never told him I cared about him. You don't want to live with that shit. So tell people you mean it, you know? Are there any favorite ad libs, sayings, quotes, mantras of hers that you hold close to you now? Um, not that I can think of off the top of my head. She just said a lot of ridiculous things over the years. She was, I mean, she was my inspiration. <laughs> In a good way? Shit. Oh yeah. She was like my shit posting inspiration. My dad is like very much too serious for a lot of shit post type stuff. My mom, like, she had a Facebook and she loved to troll my friends and like <laughs> all sorts of like, it's just a chaotic, energetic woman, but a very good one. You know, how will you remember her? She always wanted me to be a journalist actually. So, I mean, that's part of it, right? Is that like, in a way, is that her legacy um, to you? In a way, is that your yeah. legacy to her. Kind of, um, maybe not on purpose. Funny how things work though, mate. <laughs> right. Right. Yeah. And I mean, she did know before she passed, like a week before she passed, I got accepted to Evergreen and she had always loved that school. So there's that, you know, but yeah. I want to talk about recovery now. So how did you go about getting better given what we've just discussed? Um, It took time, man. It really just took time. And that's what I try telling people when they're dealing with loss is that like, it will never get easier necessarily and the pain will never be gone it will never hurt less but you will go longer without thinking about it in a painful way right like that is to say like it's similar to like when you get into a fight with your best friend and like you know that you're not you don't hate him but you're still really mad the time to reconcile with that friend is when you can think about what happened and not really feel that mad about it anymore and that'll happen eventually right like that's how it works is that like eventually you'll be able to think about the person who's gone and just think, oh, man, we had some good times together. But you won't start crying necessarily, right? And that just takes time. It's just something that you have to work on because that's the way brains work. But also because death is not something that we can really comprehend as as human beings and as, as creatures. It's like, that's why we cry. That's why we get upset. Because it's like, well, that guy was here five minutes ago. What do you mean he's gone forever now? Like, what? I can't comprehend forever. 
I can in a way, but I can't really. Right. And so just understand that it's going to take you some time to get through it and that you can't fight it. You have to just let it come as it comes, as it goes, you know, like you have to take each day one at a time and with the understanding that you still have to plan for the future a little bit. <laughs> Something a lot of therapists don't tell you that just take it one day at a time. It's like, yeah, I've been doing that for seven years now <laughs> and I don't know where I'm going in the future. So we need to plan a little bit ahead, but yeah. When you described how you manage your mental health now to me off air, mate, you used a phrase which, if interpreted in one way by some people, could be seen or even used as a stigmatizing phrase to dismiss someone's mental health. You said it's all in your head. So why has that helped you, not hindered you? Because, I mean, as much as that sounds like it's it's knocking people who are, are struggling with these issues, it's it's a, a realistic appraisal of what's happening, right? You're not upset because some otherworldly being has bestowed upon you the order of upset. You know, the government didn't declare that you were going to be upset from now on. And if, if you're not depressed every day, they're going to shoot you. Like, no, it's your brain and that's in your head. You're not 100% in control of it, just like you can't control your blood pressure necessarily. But you can impact the – you can impact your blood pressure, right? Like if I just read a bunch of stressful content on the internet and then go get into fights with people on the internet, my blood pressure is going to be up. I didn't directly control it, but I influenced it. And so like, yeah, I can't make my brain stop being depressed, but if I'm really depressed and I'm just sitting here thinking about how depressed I am and then I'm like, you know what I want to do right now? I want to look at old videos of my mom when she was still alive. Like, what are you doing? That's not to say to forget the dead person. Keep the videos, keep the photos, review them, but do it when you're in a position where you're not just like, I'm really sad right now. Let's make it worse. Which is like not why people get into it. They don't consciously tell themselves, I want to be sadder right now. But a friend of mine said it was like a Jedi mind trick. You have to tell yourself, like, I'm depressed right now and I'm going to not be anymore. And it's not going to work at first. It straight up won't. But eventually you can kind of brainwash or trick yourself into you feel yourself starting to slip down a depressive slide and you go, okay, let's let's do something different. Let's go somewhere else with this. Let's go read a book. Let's go for a walk. Let's whatever. And it doesn't work every time. But ultimately, like I said, it is all in your head, right? It is something that you're completely controlling, in control over the circumstances around it. And and even if you're out of control, even if it's like a situation where you're like, the thoughts running through my head are, are, are beyond what I need, what I can control, and I'm having serious thoughts of harming myself, then it is all in your head, which is to say like, that's your head. You have every right to call for help. You have every right to call an ambulance for yourself or to, or to call the mental health line. Like no one can get mad at you for getting extra help for what's going on in your head. Like no one can tell you like, oh, you were depressed and you called the ambulance. Well, that makes you less of a person. Like, no, this is my head. And if I thought I needed that kind of help, then I needed it. Right. If I thought I could handle it on my own, then I handled it on my own. Ultimately, you know what's going on in your head better than anybody else. So let's reflect on your mental health journey, mate. So first of all, if your mum was listening to this podcast, what do you think you'd say to her? And what do you think she'd say to you? She'd probably tell me to watch my mouth. Um, on the air. I mean, she wasn't like a Puritan or anything, but she'd be like, come on, man, don't, no, not a podcast. That's not nice. Um, and I would tell her like, mom, quick, break my balls. No, I wouldn't, I wouldn't say that. Um, I would, no, I, I would, uh, definitely catch her up on the world, but I think she'd probably be like, I'm off now. <laughs> I've heard too much, I've heard too much grimness. I'm Pretty go much. Like, yeah. right. I'm going back to 2014. It was a lot yeah, yeah, back yeah. then. Like, <laughs> But yeah, I mean, I, uh, that's the thing is that I don't know what I would say to her or what I'd want to hear from her because I said 
everything I needed to say to her while she was still alive, right? Like she knew that mm-hmm. I loved her and I knew that she loved me. And um, that's enough. Yeah. What else is there to say? Right. So. And similar question to the first topic. What has this mental health journey taught you about yourself? It's taught me that I'm stronger than I thought I was, especially like. Oh, that's a, that's a popular answer on this podcast, yeah. bro. You yeah. have no uh, idea how many like... times I hear that. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it's true though, right? It like, is true. No, no. hundred percent. I never thought I would survive high school and here I am. 13 years out of high school, 14 years out of high school, and I'm still here. So there's a lot more that it takes to break a person down than I think a lot of people realize. And that like, you might feel like, ah, I can't take any more, but I hate to say it, you probably can take a little bit more, you know, like, and that's part of the mental attitude thing too, is like, don't embrace the depression when it's really bad. Don't allow yourself to embrace it. And that sounds again, like the whole, it's all in your head thing. And what I'm trying to say here is like, when you feel yourself slipping into depression, maybe you're only 30% in control of where you're headed. So control that 30% as best as you can. That's better than nothing. Right. And as a final question, before we move on, if you could go back and talk to the Aram who was struggling in school, not knowing why, the Aram who was grieving for his mum, unemployed, lost a lot of friends and had been kicked out of university, or the Aram who had just got his foot in the door at New Lines through a strange twist of fate, what would you say to him knowing what you do now? Um, uh, I, I don't even know, man. Probably tell him to keep at what he's doing. I try not to live with a whole lot of regrets. I try to believe that like, and what I meant by like the 30% in control depression thing kind of leads into this where it's like, you're not necessarily driving a car down a road in life. You're not in control that much. Nobody is. It's more like a big old barge going down a river and you're the tugboat captain that can kind of nudge the barge in different directions, but ultimately it's going to go where it wants to go. And if that means there's a big bend in the river and the barge beaches itself for a little bit until you can get it unbeached, then so be it. But eventually it's going to get to the ocean, so it doesn't really matter, right? And so, like, that's kind of the metaphor I like to use for it is that, like, we can try as much as we want to impact things going on in our lives, but ultimately things are going to go a certain way, whether we like it to or not, we can kind of nudge it and adjust it but we can't control it and the sooner we understand that and the sooner we accept that i think the better for our mental health because i think a lot of people expend a lot of energy trying to overtly shape and control their lives when that's not really possible and all it does is set you up for failure when it doesn't go exactly the way that you want it to we've come to our final topic of conversation aram and it's one i try and have with all of my special guests if we have time it is a general natter and quick fire chat about our mental health. So firstly, how is your mental health, mate? You know, I'd say it's doing pretty well right now. Better than it's been doing for the last couple of months. I went four months without my ADHD medication this year because there's a shortage nationally and mm. my pharmacy was incompetent is a nice way of putting it. Um, is that a product of the opioid epidemic as well? Partially, but it's also like under COVID, a lot of people were going to like doctors that could write scripts electronically and so like a lot more people were getting mental health care under covid Uh, than they were previously and a lot more people were diagnosed with adhd both truthfully and because i don't know i could normally focus at work when i'm in the office but now i'm at home surrounded by my dog and all my distractions and i just can't focus and uh gee i wonder what went on there it's it's like tiktok tourette's in it it's like yeah exactly exactly and so like a lot of people were diagnosed and so like that's part of it and then the the dea has a regulation that says that they can only increase production of Adderall and certain controlled substances by 10 or 15% a year, no matter how many more people are on it. 
So if there's oh, okay. a 40% increase in the number of people who are using it and only a 10% increase in production. Yep. That right. would explain the shortage. Yeah. Right. What age were you, mate, when you became self-aware of your mental health and you realized that the feelings you were having weren't physical and they were actually in your mind? Um, I probably high school or early college when I realized that like it was, I always knew it was in my head, but it was when I realized that it wasn't just like hardwired into being human. Right. And then it was like, yeah, it was definitely like, 2013 before i realized what anxiety was like somebody described it to me like yeah you like when you lean back in an office chair and you're like oh shit for a second like that's anxiety and i was like oh that thing i feel always oh hell (laughs) okay i feel a little worse when i fall on the chair yeah but it's just always there yeah and so that was that was a little uh eye-opening for me and can you tell me the first conversation you ever had with someone about your mental health so who was it with what did you say and how did it feel like looking back did it feel like on the one hand a very big moment and burden or weight have been lifted or on the other something very easy and normal to do honestly one of the earliest individuals that i really opened up with about my mental health issues and and my depression and whatnot is uh, a guy that's just my roommate right now my homie travis uh he was my best friend in high school and we talked to each other about our mental health journeys back then and, and talked to each other through our problems back then and that made me realize first of all that i wasn't alone even though his issues were not the same as mine I realized that I wasn't alone in the wanting to die category, but also that I recognized that he didn't need to die. Like, I'm looking at you right now. You don't need to die, dude. And he would say the same thing about me. And it was like, okay, so if we can recognize that about each other, let's get to the point where we can recognize that about ourselves too. You approached um, it very logically almost, like a very basically, yeah. sort of way. <laughs> right. And it, we approached something illogical from a very logical perspective, right? Like we would call each other at midnight and be like, bro, I'm not feeling that great. Let's go let's go hang out. And I think a lot of other people would have snorted cocaine or, or gone to a strip club or whatever. We would go sit in the, a parking lot at like a department store and just hang out in my car and listen to music and see how long it would take for the cops to come bother us. Cause I mean, we're, we're both white. That's the other thing. So it's like fun for the cops to bother us. Right. It's not like a life threatening emergency. <laughs> it's like, so it's like, like too bad. <laughs> right. Right. Exactly. 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 So um, we knew you weren't Carl McLovin, man. <laughs> pretty much um but but so that was helpful too and i mean we're roommates now and so we still work through this stuff with each other and uh so that's been helpful to know that like you have a, a friend that you can actually talk to that's like not necessarily a mental health experts I'm not gonna tell you what, what necessarily they've been told professionally they need to hear they're gonna tell you maybe the wrong thing at times but hearing the wrong thing from somebody else is like well at least i'm not the only one thinking that wrong thing i heard you say it and i know it's bullshit when you said it but when i thought it i thought it was the truth what things do you find in life that trigger your mental health, mate? So it could be things people say to you, a sound, a sensation, being in a particular social environment, or have you not figured all of them out yet? Really haven't figured all of them out yet. Some of them are, are very obvious. Uh, certain anniversaries are very upsetting to me because of like, uh, like tomorrow is a pretty big one. Uh, tomorrow will be the 10 year anniversary of the gassing of 1500 people in East Ghouta in Syria. And so uh, August 21st is a pretty upsetting day and uh even if I try not to focus on it that day, the you know eight twenty one twenty three or eight twenty one thirteen is going to be very much burned into my head forever, right? Where it's like, ah, this is not a good day. And so certain things like that can definitely make it a worse mental health day. But other things like I found that I would get really depressed back when I worked on a farm around sunset in the fall. If the wind was warm, I would get really depressed, which is like my favorite weather. So it's really dumb to be depressed when that happens. But for whatever mm. reason, that would happen. I'd be like, I, I want to die. I need to die. I, I'd like to die. And I was just like sitting there like, but I'm having a great time. Why do I want to die? Like, 
yeah, you got to figure out what the triggers are and kind of head them off at the pass or at least learn to cope with them, you know. Um, don't go anywhere sunny, bro. <laughs> right, yeah, don't go to a place with nice weather, I guess. Yeah, like, <laughs> that's the only thing I'm getting out of that, but I don't know if that's actually a good thing in the long term. I, I've been uh, in Oregon for too long, man. The sunny weather just depresses <laughs> me, you know. <laughs> Conversely then, mate, what positive tools and methods do you use to improve your mental health? Which ones have worked and maybe which ones that you've tried but haven't? I mean, as I hit on earlier, definitely distracting helps, but something I've done my whole life, and this is part of the reason I got into the field I got into, was that when things really scare me or upset me, I do all I can to learn about them because I want to avoid them or at least understand them well enough to not have it impact me if I can avoid it. And so like when the Columbine High School shootings happened in 1999, like I was in second or third grade, and that was really scary to me because... I was in a school, so I could die, right? Like, I don't want to die. And so by the time I got to high school, a couple books had been written about it. And so I would read those books, figure out, like, what had happened. And so that was part of how I coped with it was, like, understanding the thing that upsets you, be that an event like the Columbine High School shootings or be it your depression in general. You know, understand what's wrong so you can try to diagnose the problem and lessen it if you can. My biggest piece of advice, at least. What is the best book or as I call it, mental health Bible you've read for your mental health. Now, it can be mental health or self-help related. It doesn't exclusively have to be. And if you can't think of a book, a film, a album, any piece of popular culture. Um, this is going to sound ridiculous, but with that in mind, when I was at uh, Evergreen State College, like right after my mother had passed away, I got really into Kid Cudi. Like really, oh, yeah. really into Kid Cudi, right? And what, and what era of Kid Cudi are we talking about? Early, before he early found Kid Jesus. Cuddy. Yeah, before he yeah, found yeah, Jesus. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, <laughs> yeah, the good stuff. And what really stood out to me about that, though, was that, like, here's this rich, well-known, good-looking dude who's writing songs about how depressed he is and how he wants to die because he's all alone and no one really relates to him. And it was like, well, damn, if you can have all the money and, and the good looks and the fame in the world and still feel the same shit that I'm feeling, maybe I'm not a broken person for feeling that. Maybe I'm not like less of a person for feeling that. I'm not inadequate. It's just something that people deal with. And for whatever reason, that really helped me uh, at the time. If there was a mantra in life that summed up your mental health, what would it be and why? Is it a Kid Cudi lyric? <laughs> no, um... It's probably a thing I jokingly told my friend many years ago and that I had forgotten that I had said until he did what I told him. So I, I, he was he was depressed and he was telling me he wanted to die. And I told him, don't kill yourself, fulfill yourself. Just kind of as a funny rhyme. I thought it would be cutesy to say. It was like a mental version of check yourself before you wreck yourself. <laughs> That's exactly <laughs> what I was going for. Right, right. Don't kill yourself, fulfill yourself. Check for, yeah. So uh, now he's getting his PhD, so he's fulfilling himself. Um, and so I <laughs> won that He's one. fulfilling his wallet, i tell you that for <laughs> right, free. that too. Or maybe, yeah. or maybe expending it, I don't know, depending on what part of his PhD he's in. Right. But, but, uh, but I mean, that is kind of my, my point here, though, is that like, it's not worth it. Don't kill yourself. Do something that you'd rather complete if you really want to die think of one more thing you want to do and finish that first and now think of one more thing and now think of one and just keep doing that until you stop thinking about how much you want to die like it takes time and it'll take a while you're never going to get past it completely you're not going to be like oh yes i haven't wanted to die in seven years like every once in a while you'll think about it but like it's just a matter of keeping those thoughts in check and not letting them run away basically what do you love about yourself who um not a lot uh that's kind come of on a, give me two give me two uh, or i'll to, give you some if you don't you go for it man. i i'm not good at this stuff you're a good writer i guess that's fair yeah 
You're a knowledgeable guy. That's fair. I'll, I'll, yeah, I'll go with those two. All right, now yeah. you give me two. Damn you. Um, <laughs> I care a lot about my friends. I know that much. Good. I, I was, I that was the other one I had in the bank in case you didn't say it. <laughs> I, I, I do. I care a lot about my friends and uh, here for them no matter, no matter what they need. And uh, yeah, that's my biggest one, I think. And I, I genuinely believe in our chances of success, both on a micro level, individually, not killing yourself. And on a macro level, uh, in terms of climate change is absolutely alarming. And it looks like the war with Russia is going to expand. And there's going to be some conflict with China at some point. And despite all that, I still think it's worth it. And I still think we can do it. And I still think we can pull this off. And so maybe a little bit of optimism or realism there. I don't know. But yeah. Mm. And as a final question, mate, this is a brother broad one. What more do you think we have to do to ensure men from all backgrounds or walks of life feel comfortable and safe in opening up about their mental health issues or just their general mental health if, most importantly, they want to do it? I think, especially with men, what I've seen is important to, I guess, practice what you're preaching. So like, if you're telling your friend, like, hey, homie, you can open up to me, you can talk to me if you really need to talk about this stuff, and they say, okay, thank you. Maybe demonstrate to them that you can be a little bit vulnerable mm-hmm. around them too. Say, so I'm just saying, man, because I understand where you're coming from because I had that happen to me once. And be the example. Yeah. Be the example. This is how I felt about it, right? And that's not always easy because it doesn't work 100 percent of the time. Like you can you can be the example. Yeah. We're just like, look at that asshole. But like, eventually, enough people. Sometimes will see you got to be the first one, man. You got to be the, the top, right, right? To do exactly. that. So yeah. Exactly, man. Exactly. So uh, I think that's just what's important is that like men need to constantly remind other men that like, no, we can talk about these issues and like. Like you're saying, waiting 20 years to open up about these kind of things, like we need to do better. And that part of that is that the rest of us need to be better listeners too. And men especially struggle with this where we aren't the best listeners at times. We want to try to help our friends and we want to try to give them solutions to their problems. Yeah, we tend to be more solutions focused. Women tend to kind of focus on just the talking, whereas the balance is in between. It's talking plus action. Yeah. And so you need to really ask your friend, like, hey, are you looking for solutions right now? Or are you just looking to vent? Because like, if you want to vent, I'm here for you. And then when that's done, we can talk about how we can fix this. But if you just start trying to tell them how to fix things, they're going to think that you're being condescending, right? And that you're just trying to get rid of them because you don't want to deal with it. And that's not the case. You're just saying... At least from my perspective, you're saying like, oh, yeah, I feel that too. Let me tell you how Mm. I fixed it. But that's not how it comes out. So Mm. explain the pathway. Right, exactly. On that note, mate, Aram Shabanian, thank you so much for coming on the Just Checking In podcast and talking to me, bro. No problem, man. Glad to be here. Well, that's all we've got time for on this episode of the Just Checking In podcast. I want to say a big thank you to Aaron for being my special guest and for letting me check in with him. I'll put links to where you can follow Aaron on social media and the show notes and find out more about all the work he does at the New Lines Institute. Remember, if you've liked what you've heard, please give it a share on social media. Tell your friends or work colleagues about it. If you're feeling generous, write us a review and give us a five-star rating on Apple Podcasts. If you like what we're doing here at Vent and want to support us further, you can do so by going to www.patreon.com slash venthelpuk or you can go to our link tree, that's linktr.ee slash venthelpuk to find out more about all the other ways you can support Vent. We hope to check in with you again very soon. And remember guys, it is always okay to vent. Vent.